Welcome to the Boss Lady Podcast. Whether you're an entrepreneur climbing the corporate ladder or a work-from-home parent, you are a boss. If you desire to make your life extraordinary, to reach and exceed your personal and professional goals, and learn from other strong leaders, then the Boss Lady Podcast is for you. As an entrepreneur, mother, wife, and former CEO, I share lessons and stories of both personal and professional successes and failures. Join me along with a diverse list of guests as we break down strategies, tools, and techniques that will enhance your career and your life. Together, we will embrace, empower, and educate each other. I am Teresa Rand, and this is the Boss Lady Podcast. Welcome to the Boss Lady Podcast. I am Teresa Rand, as you just heard in the introduction, and you can find out everything about what I do at TeresaRandConsulting.com. We have such fabulous guests on this show. I don't like to waste time on commercials, but I do want you to know where to find me. And that is Teresa with no H, T-E-R-E-S-A, RandConsulting.com. You can find everything about the boss lady, the podcast, the consulting work that I do with businesses and individuals, and anything else you may want to know is pretty much on there. But I have two incredibly smart guests today, and I'm very excited. They were introduced to me and uh, by virtue of a book that they have coming out June 15th, and we'll talk about that. But the name of the book is Glass Walls. And for those of you that have listened to me for two or three years that I've been doing the podcast know that I talk often about the glass ceiling, but have not very often mentioned glass walls. But the title of this book intrigued me. So when I dug into it, uh, I was like, I, I just absolutely have to meet these women and have them on the podcast. So they are here today. We have Dr. Amy Deal and Dr. Leanne Dubinsky. Both are with us. As I said, they are the authors of the book. And I'm going to also refer you to another book authors uh, called Athena Rising, Why Men Should Be Mentors. And I mention that now because I don't want to forget. I had Dr. Johnson and David Smith on early on in, in the first year of the podcast, and they were fabulous. And Amy and Leanne know them. So I'll, I'll put a link to that podcast because this topic is of interest to you. And if you are a returning listener, I know it is if you're continuing to listen. If you're a new listener, you will love this podcast and hopefully you'll go back and, and look at some others. And as always, I'm going to ask like every other podcaster in the world does to rate, review, subscribe, do all those fun things. So Leanne and Amy, welcome. Thank you for having welcome. us. So Amy, yeah, I'm going to start with you. Here. Tell us how, because this was right in the beginning of the book. Although I did tell the listeners, the book doesn't come out to June 15th. You guys were gracious to send me a pre-copy and a PDF. I can't wait to get my hard mm -hmm. copy. I've already ordered it, but or pre-ordered it. But I was fascinated just by how you guys met and then gave birth, if you will, to <laughs> this book. I like your, I like your definition or your, um, analogy to give you birth sure. that is what it, is, it feels like um, we've been working on yeah we've been working on this book in particular for about the past seven years but we actually met in 2014 so about nine uh, nine years ago um leanne and i were just both a year out from we had just finished our um, phds um and we were attending a conference on um the goal of the conference was to advance 
uh, knowledge and advanced research on women in leadership. And we were fortunately grouped into the same working group. And the story I tell at the beginning of the book is I actually had laryngitis. <laughs> I developed laryngitis on the way to the conference on the airplane. And for the first two days, I could not speak. And it was very anxiety inducing for me because I had lots of things to say and I couldn't say them. And Leanne was there and she was making really good comments. And I'm like, oh, I want to speak to her. <laughs> the third day, which was just a half day, we finally, fortunately, my voice returned enough to have a conversation. And Leanne and I started talking and we started talking about our respective dissertations. Um, she, um, while I had studied women in higher education and I had looked at adversity, personal and professional adversity that they had experienced, as well as um, gender barriers. Um, Leanne had worked at, looked at challenges that women in the faith-based nonprofit field had faced. And we started talking and we quickly realized that the challenges that these women had faced were very similar. And I think for Leanne especially, Leanne had thought that the, um, that the challenges were um, because they were really coming from a religious environment. You know, religion is thought to be much more, it is much more conservative, higher education is more liberal, more progressive. But what we were both, you know, surprised to, to figure out very quickly was that the challenges that they were experiencing were very similar. And um, we quickly came to the conclusion that it didn't really, that, that perhaps at that time we thought perhaps the, the industry didn't really matter as much. The similarity was that these were women in leadership. And so that started us on a journey um, for the past nine years of partnering together on this research. Um, we started by pull, pulling our data sets together and pulling out the, the common barriers um, from that work. We, we took that work to build then with two other researchers, um, Dr. Amber Stevenson and Dr. David Wong. We built a scale to measure gender bias. Out of that scale development, we um, identified the six primary core barriers that make up gender bias, and that formed the foundation for this, for this book. Um, and so that's the, the short story of how we met and how we um, how we've been uh, collaborating together for the past nine no, years. I love that because I thought I, I call it when the stars align. You know, you two were meant to get together and 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 write this yes. important <laughs> book. But I have to tell you, and we're going to talk about the different areas you came from because I, I really want to talk about the faith base, and we'll talk about that a little bit as well as higher ed, but. I have to start out saying that, you know, I picked up the book. I, I'm, I've read it. I'm not all the way through, but large partly through. And I was like, yeah, I've been in the workforce for 35 years and we're still talking about this stuff. And I keep wanting to think and believe it's better. But then I pick up a book like yours or like Brad and David's that I referred to earlier and then my own experiences in talking to, I run a women's membership organization and I talk to women in my organization that are 10, 20 years younger than me. And they're telling me stories and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So why aren't we still here that this gender bias is a problem and how bad a problem is it still, Amy? Yeah. So the thing I think we, I think we know a lot more about the issue uh, today. There's beyond Leanne and myself, there's lots of, um, there's, you know, other authors and researchers working on it, on this problem, but it is a very pernicious uh, problem and a very um, sticky problem. And the people who are at the, the top of the hierarchy, uh -huh. and, you know, the men, the, the um, generally the white men and then generally affluent white men, 
you talk, think about who's running our CEO, who's running our um, com, um, companies or businesses or in our political life, right? Um, they have an invested um, interest in keeping the gender hierarchy in place. And so um, even though there's been a lot written about this issue, it, it unfortunately has not gone away. And that's why the subtitle of our book is Shattering the Six Gender Bias Barriers Still Holding Women Back at Work. And I, and I, and I want to say that one of the reasons I think we still see inequality, like we still see inequality is we get resistance right. even from within our own government, like in the United States. Like, and you think about the federal level, like the United States is the only, you know, industrialized nation that lacks, you know, paid parental leave, um, that lacks a federal policy for it. While some states have the policy, we have nothing on the federal level. Um, so we lack paid parental leave, things like universal pre-K, subsidized childcare, all these things that could really support women, uh, women's ability to fully participate in the, in the workplace. And even though President Biden has been supportive, the U.S. Congress is made up of majorities who don't think that these issues are worth funding. Um, and so there's a group of people, like I said, mainly these affluent, you know, white men who think that life was better in the good old days when patriarchy reigned even more supreme and when women stayed home, took care of the men, took care of the children, took care of the housework. Um, what we see today is that today, sexism and bias against women is a lot of times it's more subtle than like than what happening in the 50s or the mad men days but a surprising amount is still very overt and we talk about both um we talk about bias gender bias in the book um you know the subtle forms and the overt forms um and we, what we also say in the book is that no unfortunately no woman in Absolutely. the workplace is exempt from from gender bias so we need to keep talk, talking about this issue uh, about bias against women at work until it's eliminated at both in the workplace and in all arenas. Yeah, and, you know, every chapter I read in the book, I would find myself going, oh, because you guys have invented a lot of new words, which we'll talk about in a minute. And every time I'd go, oh, well, I remember when this happened to me, but I didn't really have a name for it. I just, my gut said, ah, something about this doesn't feel right. And you talk about, well, before I, I go there, Leah, you know, Amy mentioned that you actually distilled your research down and you came up with really six gender bias barriers, it's the right words, that women still face at work. So, Leah, why don't you tell us briefly about those six barriers and then I'll jump into some other questions. Okay, sure. So, basically, we start with male privilege. The environment is just built on um, men as being the leaders, controlling the resources, setting the standards, and assigning women to second-class status. And that can show up on the more subtle end of the continuum, but it permeates so many of our workplaces. And then flowing out of that, we find that women experience disproportionate constraints. Uh, they're forced or pressured to act in ways that support men and don't challenge them. They also get insufficient support. So that may be social structures and networks that help them advance, or even just a, a manager or a boss having their back when they make an appropriate decision. But then moving into the little more obvious or the overt ones, women get devalued at work. They're treated as less than or made to seem less important. Their authority gets uh, diminished. They experience outright hostility. Now we're moving into overt discrimination, which could be anything from um, harassment to retaliation. 
with the goal of keeping women in their supposed place. And then the last barrier that we identified is women's mm-hmm. response to this, which is all too often acquiescence. It feels like so much pressure and too much for them to do individually, which it is that many women just kind of give in and, and say, I can't fight this by myself. I just have to accept it and right. to live with right. it. Right. Yeah. And each of those, you, you could pr- probably took you all seven years, nine years to write the book because <laughs> each of those could be a book. But if you research, you know, one that, well, there were a couple that stuck out to me, but one I re- remember very early on in my first professional job, I, my boss wanted me to go with him on a benchmark trip to see another facility like ours. And it was going to be two overnights. And like the week before I happened to be going through a divorce and I lived in a small town. And I thought, you know, I probably just need to let him know. And before not thinking anything about the upcoming trip in a couple of weeks. So I went in, I said, I just need you to know what's going on in my life. You know, my kids come here after school. I didn't want you to hear it from anybody else, blah, blah, blah. The very first thing he said to me was, oh, well, you can't go on that trip with me in two weeks. And I remember going, what? Well, that just wouldn't look right. And what I wanted to say is, well, well, I won't tell you what I wanted to say. I had no interest in doing anything but traveling with him for business. Let's just put it that way. But he actually got someone else to go with us. He did include me, but until he was certain someone else could go, like I needed a chaperone to not, I don't know, whatever his mind was thinking. And in your book, you actually talk about that, that those things happen and they shouldn't. And you have a name for it that I did not know. I remember the bite bar, the Mike Pence story, but why don't you tell us about that, Leanne? Yeah, so this one is called the Billy Graham rule, or the more updated version would be the Mike Pence rule. So Billy Graham in his heyday had a number of rules that he enforced in his ministry, and one of them was never be alone with a woman who is, wasn't his wife. So never be alone with any other woman. And so men in our society have kind of caught on to this idea and decided that it makes sense. And so that's what happened to you. You got hit with the Billy Graham rule of you couldn't be with your colleague, you know, just the two of you. So um, at work, we call it now the glass mm-hmm. partition, but really where this is coming from is in our society, we, men are really only taught three ways to look at women. Women are their mother or their lover or their daughter. And so women at work aren't mom and they aren't daughter. So they're probably going to be sort of shifted mentally into that potential lover category. And this idea that women are temptresses, that if men are with women, they're going to get up to shenanigans that they shouldn't be doing at work, just sort of permeates the society that we're in. And so these glass walls or the Billy Graham rule or the Pence rule gets constructed to keep men and women separate. But the problem is that the women then are cast as the problem rather than thinking it's that we don't know how to think about each other as colleagues or as friends as co-workers, right? And then women are the ones left often to come up with the solution of how to get around this crazy rule. Well, and they're often probably just not invited. Yeah, or they're just left out. They miss out on opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take, I'll take a man right. on the team instead of her. We can come back and disseminate the information yeah. to her, which we know is not the same. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, yeah. You know, the other one that and I'm just kind of picking through these as I read the book and things that stuck out to me is the topic of gender, what you guys call gender blindness. Mm-hmm. 
And I just, I just realized I called you, you guys, and that's a whole nother conversation we're going to have in a minute, Amy, about sports metaphors. And that's how it's ingrained in us, right? Oh my gosh. Okay. But anyway, we'll stick with gender blindness for now because not everybody thinks or including women or recognizes that this is a problem. I have two very dear friends that one of them says she's done many speeches, been in charge of several organizations in town. And she says, I don't want to be recognized as the first woman in anything. I want to just win the award or get the job because it's not about me being a woman. And I push back on her and say, but other women need to know that you are the first woman and that this is setting a stage that maybe they didn't think was available before. And then I have another friend who is the executive director of a prominent organization in our town. And she says, well, I've never had this. I've never experienced it, but I've seen it happen to her in meetings where she's been interrupted or when she came, she took the place of a man that had been there for 20 years. And it was probably a good year before they stopped calling him to get quotes about something in the paper. And then finally they would call her. He was retired. But either she didn't recognize it or doesn't want to recognize it or goes along. But what she'll say to me is, you know, maybe it's because I'm kind of a boys kind of girl. I was a tomboy and I know all about sports. And so they just saw me as one of them. And it's not really that I want to change her mind. I'm grateful she doesn't have that experience. But I think by verbalizing that, it maybe what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe can help me here, Leanne. It diminishes those of us that have had those experiences. That's right. It does. Um, one of the early interviews I did was with a woman very much like your friend there who spent almost two hours telling me that she had never experienced any form of gender discrimination. And then she would immediately follow with a story where she was marginalized from a meeting or wasn't invited to something or wasn't allowed to contribute. And I sat there just puzzling over how is she mentally making sense of this, right? By saying it's not happening to her while telling me how it's happened to her. But we do run into this. And so we call it gender blindness because it's people who either truly don't see it or can't allow themselves to recognize that gender plays a role in what's happening in the workplace. And for women, you know, for men, it's maybe a little easier to understand. It's really hard to understand when we see it in women, but we think maybe there are several different things going on. So some women may be um, holding on to this view as a form of self-protection. They need, they want to hold on to their role. They need to be seen as a team player. They don't want to be viewed as disloyal to the male leaders around them. And so they will continue to say, oh, no, everything's great. Everything's great. They don't want to be the squeaky wheel, Right. Then there's some other women who perhaps have achieved really well and think that if they admit that bias exists, that will somehow diminish from what they've accomplished. Because, you know, men can be really good at communicating to a particular woman, oh, you're different from the rest. You're better. You're special. I've experienced some of this, right? And you think, oh, well, okay. You know, I actually can play in the big leagues. There's another sports metaphor for you. (laughs) Good. It makes me feel better. You know, so that can feel good. But at the end of the day, it's hurting all of us because these things are happening. And 
like you said, we need to be able to see those role models of women breaking through some of those barriers and being the first to do something. And for the women who are trying to convince themselves, there's eventually there's going to come some point, I think, of cognitive dissonance where the storyline just doesn't hold up anymore because something's going to happen that no longer fits their narrative. And then then what's going to happen? They're going to be Right. Or, or whatever. Rushed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so exactly. if we can come alongside and help them just begin to process this and notice it, I think we're doing them a favor. Yeah, absolutely. But that that's, you know, and what I say to my friends is I understand and I'm glad, but it does happen. And, and, you know, I hope you would support other women. But anyway, so we keep bringing up sports metaphors. So I think, Amy, this might be a good time. Um, excuse me, my allergies are bothering me, is spring in Florida um, to talk about what your subject matter, if you will, in the book on sports metaphors, because that one actually, in a lot of ways, made me laugh and then go back. I tell a quick story here. When I was uh, a vice president at my association in Florida, in Jacksonville, I had a young man that worked for me that was the ed i supervised four different locations and but my senior level ceo coo they were very much into sports so every monday in our meetings probably the first 15 minutes we're talking about football golf basketball whatever that happened so i always ask jeremy and we laugh about it he's still a friend of mine to this day to send me the top 10 things that happened in the sports world leading up to that Monday morning. He literally would send me these bullet points so that I could at least be part of the conversation. You know, I was smart enough not to get too deep over to what I didn't know, but I at least recognized when they, you know, said Tiger Woods or Tom Brady or whoever. Um, So that, again, like I said, when I'm reading your book, I keep thinking about all these things so talk a little bit, Amy, about how you identify and talk about the sports metaphors and why that's a problem. Yeah, and I'll, so I'm going to start, start with sports metaphors. I'll segue into masculine <laughs> right. language and the you guys thing um, in a second. They are, they are related. Um, but the sports metaphor thing, the thing that's interesting about your story is that, you know, you went to the extent of, you know, saying, you know, send me the, the things that happened over the weekend in sports so that I can, you know, be up to date and participate in the conversation, but what man ever asks, you know, send me the things that happened in this, I don't know, female, um, you know, type hobby <laughs> over the weekend yeah. so that I can participate with the women. None, right? Um, right. Um, so it's all about us as women trying to fit into this male-normed masculine environment, right? And sports metaphors is one way. Um, so the, some of the examples that we give in the book of sports metaphors are things that, you know, some of these may sound um, like Leanne just used one, the big leagues. Like they may, like lots of women do understand them because we are so socialized into a, you know, a male, male world. But, but to think that all women are, will understand them and also international people may not understand them. Um, and, and, even, and even some men. And so some of the, some of the examples we give are things like gold yeah. posts or Hail Mary, um, knocking it out of the park, uh, full court press. Um, um, drop the ball. I mean, so like they sound like they sound innocuous enough, but but really they come out of the the, the world of sports. And whether it's you're using sports metaphors or you're talking about sports all the time, you 
we really are like in, in an organization, you may not be, you're not being inclusive of right. women or people that have other interests, right? If that's, the, if that's your predominant uh, conversation um, all the time. And, um, and it's going to segue into the masculine language um, um, conversation, which we have a section on that in our book too. And I actually wrote an article for Fast Company about yeah. the, wor- the word guys, <laughs> G-U-Y-S. Why the word guys is not, why we use it like it's gender neutral, but it really, it really isn't. And I talk about the history of the word, um, but I also share, you know, my own experience. I grew up in Pennsylvania where I grew up. That's just what you said to a group of people, no matter who was involved in it could be all girls, right. Or all women. Hey, you guys. (laughs) Um, and so it was ingrained in me, you know, and, um, and so what I did in in the, um, in the article was to, to, um, talk about, I talked about the, that, you know, even though a speaker may not intend it to be exclusionary, they may not intend, you know, if they're saying you guys to exclude the women in the group, the problem is not everybody hears it that way. And so particularly in an organization, you want to be careful with your language and making sure that you're using inclusive language so that everybody, no matter their gender, feels included. Um, And in the article and in, in this, in the book too, we give lots of examples, uh, lots of examples of alternatives to you guys. The one I generally generally default to is you all. Some people don't feel comfortable saying y'all. Like in the South, you know, they've got they have a very right. gender inclusive, you know, y'all. Um, some people in the in the who don't live in the South don't feel comfortable saying y'all. So I what I say is I just enunci- right. enunciate it. You all. How are you all doing? Or how are how how's the team doing? Or how How's everyone? Like, there's lots of there's lots of ways to get around saying saying you guys. But I find even myself sometimes I slip up. Like I'll see I was walking. This was maybe six months ago. I was walk, I was walking on a trail and I saw two female colleagues and I said, "Hey, how are you guys doing?" And I immediately immediately I knew that I <laughs> didn't want to be saying that, and so I just immediately corrected myself. Right. How are you all doing? <laughs> um, but. So I know it's a hard habit to break, but it but it is important that we that we be conscious of it. I know I've been in, like I work in the male dominated male dominated field mm-hmm. of information technology. I've been on, in meetings and uh, on Zoom calls where I'm the only woman, and the people on the call like, "Okay, what do you guys think?" I'm like, are you really seeing me here? You know, even though like I remember one call in particular not that long ago, I was the most senior person in my organization on this call, and you know, I'm, I'm asking the question, right. are you really yeah. even seeing me? You know, because they're saying, they're saying, right. you know, guys, guys, guys. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's important that we be thoughtful about, about what we're, yeah. the words we're using. You know, when we talk um, about there, there's so many, you know, you talked about golf terms and sports terms. And then, you know, that leads me into mm-hmm. thinking about, well, the, the golf tournaments or the golf games that the guys go and the women uh-huh. don't go. And, you know, it just starts this snowball effect of all these things that we are typically are excluded from. Now, I know you're in the IT section and um, Leanne, you come from a faith-based world, which was fascinating to me because I just finished reading the memoir of Beth Moore, who, if any listeners don't know who Beth Moore is, she's a female evangelist for majority of her career, totally connected to Southern Baptist convention work and she broke away from them. And so that was of interest to me when I was reading this in the book about a two-person career structure 
and you know, the reality in her book is she just got more powerful than the men in her world and they didn't like it. It's, you know, those are my words, not hers, but pretty close to hers. But talk about the two person career structure. And I have to quickly tell you, I was in a conversation today at lunch with a friend of mine. Her and her husband have the same degree. They're married. They're both practicing their discipline, but they have two babies, two small little girls. And so she stepped back. He's the primary, but she's doing all the marketing, all the billing, all the everything in the back office, except seeing wow. patients. And people are asking her, we thought you were a doctor too. And she's like, well, I am. <laughs> I'm just not, you know, so it's, I'm not sure that's a two person career structure, except maybe it is because they've got one business and she's still you know, not getting her own paycheck. I assume, I don't know that, but so I'm going to stop talking. You okay. just tell us what so that the, the, <laughs> the two-person career. The two-person career is when the organization hires one person, but expects and maybe even insists on unpaid volunteer support work from the spouse. And this always goes, hire the husband, expect the wife to help. It doesn't tend to happen in the reverse, Right. And so the, um, even in the process of hiring, the spouse may be vetted to find out if they're suitable for this particular role. And so this uh, idea was identified in the 1970s by a sociologist named Hannah Papanek. And when she found it, she originally said it applies to people like high-level military officers or high CEOs and presidents of businesses, really mm-hmm. the big public visible positions like that. Well, pretty quickly... Uh, other researchers said, hey, you know, this applies to clergy too, right? The pastor and the pastor's wife is a, a very well-known yeah. person career structure that many of us have seen in different parts of our life. Um, but really, if you think about it, it goes all the way back to the top of the U.S. government, like we were saying before, how our government doesn't necessarily support things that are good for women. The president and the first lady are literally a two-person career structure because the president is yeah. in office, but the first lady is expected to do certain things. She has a staff, she has responsibilities, but she doesn't get paid and she doesn't actually have a job, right? And uh, Except for Jill Biden, yeah. Dr. Jill Biden. Right. Said, nope, I'm not doing that. That was so interesting when Biden got elected because she said, I'm keeping my job, I'm keeping my title. And there was a whole kerfuffle around that. People saying she should title herself. That's one of the words Amy and I came up with, you know, untitling where you don't use your title. People wanted her to untitle herself and not call herself Dr. Biden. And she said, No, I am this. I'm doing this. Okay. Yeah. When I was hired in my last role as CEO of the association here in Daytona Beach. I remember the first 30, I worked for a nonprofit in the first 30 days, I wanted to go see each board member at their office, you know, get to know them, blah, blah, blah. So I went to this one man's office and after he made me wait like 20 minutes before his admin brought me up to his office and I go in his office, he doesn't come around the desk to shake hands, doesn't stand up anything, just kind of leans back in his desk. And he had happened to be one of the, he was on the selection committee and it was me and two men applying for the job. And um, he leaned back and crossed his arms and he said, well, I just want you to know before we start that I didn't vote for you. I was like, okay. Um, And he said, I really liked the other gentleman and he called him by name. 
because he and his wife made a really good team. I was single at the time. So what they did with the three candidates, they divided them up and we all went to dinner separately with a couple of board members. Well, the wives went with the husbands. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a husband. So I went by myself and he said, I didn't vote for you. And I said, well, I thought this was one person's job. That's what I said to him. And I said, and I hope I can change your mind. And he left the board shortly after that. (laughs) And I was like, who says that? Who says that? There was only one paycheck. But reading your book just, again, made me go, oh, yeah, it just, it's crazy. It really makes no logical sense except to the men in charge. Mm -hmm. The last one that I wanted to talk about was the glass cliff, because I find this one fascinating. So Leanne, tell us a little bit what your definition of that and and how that is impactful. Right. So the glass cliff is uh, when the organization puts a woman in charge because the organization is in crisis and things are not going well. And they put in a woman to take over so that Uh, They want her to perform a miracle, but if she doesn't, they can blame her and they can let her go and then maybe even say, see, women can't do this job. So that one's pretty well known. But one of the questions people always ask is, why would a woman even say yes to a position like that, right? Why would she even agree to step into a role that's so risky? And what we've learned is that many women think this is the only chance I'm going to get So I'd better just take it because if I don't take this, I may never have a chance to lead at the top. And so women will do it even though they know, sometimes they don't know, but often they do know how risky it is. Sometimes organizations, women really don't know because organizations are not transparent during the hiring process. And we give some tips Mm -hmm. for this. We give some tips for this in our book where we talk about how to ask questions. Like if you're interviewing for a top role or any, any role of importance, um, ask questions about, about what the state of the organization is and how you will be supported. Make sure that you've got, there's clear goals and expectations around your performance. Um, so that you're coming into it with as eyes wide open as you can, as you can have and try and trying to avoid being set up, um, on a, on a class, situation because in some situation a situation like that a woman may be better off declining the role than going into something where she's sure to fail and not only that she's sure to be blamed and scapegoated when 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 failure happens the organization won't say oh it was it was because of us no they're going to say no it was this woman that we hired and now she's gone and <laughs> bring in a man bring in a man yeah yeah um, and again you know yeah. personally i remember being interviewed and not really asking all the questions I should have asked up front because you're honored to be considered for the job. And understand you need to ask yeah. those questions yeah, too. Really. And some of the examples in your book are Carly Fiorani and um, oh, I'm drawing a blank, Meg. Was it Meg? Who are some of the others? Carol Barks at Yahoo um, was one. Jill Abramson at the New York Times is another. Um, you know, situations where they were set up to fix a failing organization. They didn't do it as quickly as what right. the, the men on the board or whatever, you know, deemed appropriate. And they were just, you know, just but fired. But we read their stats, um, 
and they all improve the organization. Not oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Carol, like yep, Carol Bards, you know, she she improved, she did cost cutting. Like she, if you don't know the story of Carol Bart, she was brought into Yahoo. I think it was the year two thousand nine, um, and it was a time whenever Yahoo was starting to get. Um, they were their their ad revenues were declining because Google was kind of taking over, and um, she did some necessary cost cutting. And she actually the profits actually rose, but the ad revenues were still declining, and so she was just let go. Um, uh, you know, abruptly fired um, because, you know, they didn't feel that she had, um, I guess, fixed the organization in the way that they felt was appropriate. And then and for both of those women, uh, Jill Abramson and Carol Bartz, they were also um, characterized in the media as being um, like brusque or, you know, like not behaving in a ladylike, in a ladylike way. Yeah. Um, standard, right? If you're too nice, you're too nice to lead. And then if you're um, if you actually lead, you're intimidating. So, yeah, that's um, yep. the double buying yep. theory. Well, again, I know we could talk all day about this and, and I, I would love to because this topic just fascinates me, I, even though it makes me sad that we're still talking about it. But one last question, and I want to talk about where listeners can get a copy of your book. But how do you spot signs in a workplace, either during the interview process or shortly after you get there? How do you spot, are there easy spot signs to spot that a workplace has a problem with gender bias? Yeah, I'll take this one. Um, I'm going to take this one from the vantage point of you're somebody who's maybe either you're a newly minted graduate looking for your first job, or maybe you've been in the workplace for a while, but you're planning to apply for a new job in a new organization. There are a few ways that you can, that you can spot gender bias from the outside. Um, the first one is to look at the company's website and examine their leadership team. How many women are on that team? If you see only one or two, or perhaps none at all, that can be a sign that the workplace is not inclusive or supportive of women. Um, and that can also be that we talk about tokenism in our book, and that could be a situation where maybe they've got one or two women into positions um, where they're they are just basically for appearances, um, appearance of diversity, but they're actually not given a voice or, or supported um, in in their roles. Another thing you can try to do is try to con like especially during the interview process, if you're given the chance to talk to potential colleagues, um, try to connect with other women already working in the company. Ask them about their work culture. Um, and if, in particular, if there's nobody being offered to you through the interview process, you could also look, look, use a tool like LinkedIn uh, to try to find other women who may work for that organization and see if um, you may message them and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about taking a job here. Would you be willing to have a conversation with me? And then you could ask those women your questions about work culture and how supportive they are of, uh, of, of the women. So. There are, like, even though you may not be inside the organization, there are some ways that you can get a sense of, of the culture. And it, I think it's just really, really important before going into an organization, do what you can to ask questions, you know, for, for anybody that you talk to about the culture and about how the support that they have for you, know, that you'll have, plus the support that they offer to, to other women. To try to go yeah, with your eyes great right advice, over. great advice, and and reminding yourself that if you're at the table, you're deserving of the job, so it's okay to ask those questions. Um, That's right. You know, there's just so much right. good in this book. 
And I am just honored, really, truly honored to have both of you on as guests because it's important work. Um, and I still see it every day and I know you do. And it, it's validation to us that are just in the everyday work world and something happens in our gut goes, hmm, what, what doesn't feel right about that? And you actually created words and scenarios that validate what we have happening out there in the real everyday work world. So thank you for that. Um, I'm so glad you were on. This is well worth every second of this conversation. So Amy, where can we find your book? So the book, again, it's titled Glass Walls, Shattering the Six Gender Bias Barriers Still Holding Women Back at Work. It's available at all the major online um, book resellers. Um, if you go to my website, which is Amy, A-M-Y dash deal, D-I-E-H-L dot com. Um, I've got all the, I've got a whole list of pre-order links, of order links um, for the various resellers, um, both in the United oh. States and actually international, um, internationally too. Um, so, um, and it's also available oh, in both hard copy and ebook. Um, well, I'll certainly put version. all that in the show yeah. notes as well. And I know um, if we can take this out of the podcast, if you don't want your LinkedIn, but if you, you know, I began following you both on LinkedIn and I know, I think it was you, Amy, put an interesting mm -hmm. post on there the other day. So I've been following both of you because you, you put some interesting articles in things. So if you want me to put that in the show notes, mm -hmm. I can. Um, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah please do. But, um, yep. Yeah, thank you so very much. You've been great guests, and we only hit the high points in this book. So I encourage everybody, and if, especially if you have, we're in the season of college graduation. So if you have a college graduate on your list, buy this book because they are about to embark in the world, and maybe they don't know what they don't know yet. So I think this will be a great graduation gift for any young woman that is graduating. So again, thank you very much for being here. And again, if you are a listener, go to TeresaRainConsulting.com. I'll put all that in the show notes as well as how you can connect with Leanne and Amy and get a copy of this very important book. And I will end the podcast like I always do with my grandfather saying, which is quite comical today because I can't breathe from the allergies, but he always said to take time to stop and smell the roses. So until we meet again, take care. <laughs>